Good morning. It's uh, good to see all your smiling faces. I'm sure some of you thought, ah, Chris Marley is coming. But unfortunately, this is the other Chris Marley. I'm the off-road model. My son, Christopher, uh, is our senior pastor at Miller Valley. This morning's lesson is entitled, The Consummation of the Kingdom. And we'll be in Matthew chapter 13, uh, verses 24 through 30. And we'll be looking at verses 36 through 43, and then verses 47 through 50. Let's hear the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good feed seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. In verse 36, it reads, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then in Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 50, again the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, They drew to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father God, we ask as we enter into this time of worship, that, Father, uh, you would hide me behind the cross of Christ Jesus, that, Father, only your word would go forth, that, Father, your name would be glorified, that your kingdom would be established, that it would continue to grow until the day that you take us home to be with you. Father, please bless this, the preaching and teaching of your word, for your name's sake. 
We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning we'll be looking at two parables which have a great deal in common. The parable of the wheat and the tares and the parable of the dragnet. Both of these are kingdom parables. Both of them are recorded only in Matthew. Both speak of a mixed population of both desirable and undesirable tenants. And finally, both end in severe judgment. As far as the contrasts are concerned, only the parable of the wheat and tares has an in-depth explanation by Jesus. Only the wheat and the tares show Satan's active hostility against Christ. And only the wheat and the tares shows the bad tenants as not being immediately recognizable as bad. Here in Arizona, we're, we're fortunate when a tumbleweed sprouts up in our garden, there's no mistaking it. But what we have in the parable is a, is a, uh, a plant that looks much like wheat. In the Middle East, there's four kinds of plants which are called tares, but the most common is a plant that looks like wheat until the head begins to form. And then it's a, a darkish uh, colored head. And uh, strangely enough, this tear often hosts a poisonous fungus, which makes it unfit for human consumption. It can be used for poultry feed, but not for humans. Now, as we look at these two parables, we see in the wheat and tares a picture of the developing church <clears throat> as she heads towards the consummation or the end of the age. In the dragnet, we see the end of the age itself. Now, before we begin, let's have a quick overview regarding the interpretation of parables. We, we have to be careful as we read the parables because it's easy for our vain imagination to read things into them that are not there. And it's easy for us in our, in our vanity to skip over things that are applicable in our lives. First and foremost, how many themes should we look for as we read Christ's parables? The answer is one. We may find various subtopics or applications, but we should look for one major theme. In the dragnet, we see the picture of the harvest at the end of the age where, where the good and the bad fish are all gathered in at once. Whereas in the wheat and the tares, we see that the theme is the conditions leading up to that harvest. The second challenge in working through the kingdom parables is discerning where the literal interpretation ends and the figurative begins. Folks, we can get into a lot of trouble. Uh, as, as, as we look at the parables, if we don't pay close attention to this principle, where does the literal end and where does the figurative begin? For example, can Satan actually sow his own children? Well, that's not in keeping with Scripture. So we have to, we have to, to, to read very carefully here. The third challenge is to what degree do we follow the parables' details? We know that at some point, all parables break down. Forcing an interpretation where there's not meant to be one uh, can lead us into some bizarre theology. For example, verse 25, we read, While men slept, the enemy sowed bad seed. Does this mean that God was actually taken by surprise? Did, did Satan actually get one over on the Lord of all creation? 
And the answer is an emphatic no. A God who can be bested by his enemy is a God who's not worthy of our worship. So we have to be careful, as I said, as, as we look at parables. <clears throat> Given man's penchant for new and exciting interpretations, we must rein in our love of novelty as we read these parables. And we have to ask ourselves, what saith the scripture? What does the weight of God's word teach? As Arthur W. Pink says, may God grant us wisdom to go as far as the scripture allows but not one step farther. Let's not use our vain imaginations to lead us into places where the Scripture does not actually take us. That being said, let's begin with the parable of the wheat and the tares. Our first heading in this morning's lesson is entitled, The Work of the Farmer. We see in the parable that he sowed good seed and that he sowed the seed in his field. Now, in this we see God the Son depicted as the farmer. It is his seed and it is his field. He's sovereign over it. It's his creation. We also see that the farmer is the one who reveals the presence of the enemy to his servants. All the servants saw was the tares. They said, didn't you sow good seed? How come there's tares in the field? What's what's the story? What's going on? And... uh, his response to the servants was a, was a, a was a, a fascinating one. He said, "Let them grow together until the harvest." And in doing so, the farmer exhibits discernment, patience, and wisdom. Folks, we don't get discernment, patience, and wisdom by drinking out of the creek. We get that discernment, that patience, that wisdom by being in God's Word and applying his word in our lives. We, uh, for, for quite a few years when I worked for SRP, the power company, um, and if any of, uh, any of you worked for APS, please forgive me. But, uh, I worked for SRP and I got to train apprentices. And it was amazing how they would get just a little bit of head knowledge and boy, they'd be ready to take on the world. And I'd tell them no. You need to apply this. You need to, you need to get your hands dirty. You need to, to apply these things and in that you'll gain a certain amount of wisdom. Well, the farmer exhibits, as I said, discernment, patience, and wisdom in his answer. A, discernment. Don't endanger the good crop while you're trying to remove evil. Folks, some of our, sometimes our, our good intentions mixed with untempered zeal, can cause a great deal of collateral damage. My, uh, uh, my son, our senior pastor, calls, uh, calls this the cage phase, when we would be better off to be kept in a cage till we learn some discernment, till we learn some wisdom. Secondly, the farmer exhibited patience. He told his servants to wait until the harvest, wait till the, till all the grain is ripe. And then all things would be fully manifested or revealed. And any of us can, with any experience at all, can look back over our lives and see situations where we thought we had the answer. We thought we knew the score and we went in with guns blazing and realized later sheepishly that we didn't know everything that we should have known before we went in. And so he tells his workers 
to be patient. Wait until the harvest comes and then all things will be fully manifested or fully revealed. And finally, he displays wisdom. The presence of evil is not always as pressing of a problem as we think it is. Let me repeat that. The presence of evil is not always as pressing of a problem as we think it is. This is a tremendously important concept for us to grasp. The surgeons, excuse me, the servants wanted to rush out and commence ripping and tearing, but the farmer had a plan in his wisdom which would be revealed in its own time. And this parable showed Christ's disciples and uh, eventually ourselves why Christ didn't call down fire on the scribes and Pharisees, why his judgment has not fallen before this time. Because oftentimes we cry out, Lord, how long? When will your judgment come? We have to stop. We have to be patient because the harvest is not fully ripe. When John the Baptist spoke of separating the wheat from the chaff and then the subsequent burning of that uh, chaff, there was an air of urgency in his preaching because he was he was talking to men and women who had a limited lifespan. He was talking about in your life, these things will take place. And so there was this urgency in his preaching. His listeners were being called to immediate action. The axe is laid to the root of the tree. Bring forth fruits befitting repentance. But in this parable, Christ takes us to a higher altitude. He shows shows an eternal view of the kingdom. He shows them that although judgment is certain, it's on God's timetable, not man's. And folks, this is where we, as, as, as mere mortals, this is where we get into a lot of trouble because all we can see is the, the problem that's immediately in front of us. We need to pray, Lord, take me to higher ground. Give me a view of, of, of your kingdom, an eternal view of your kingdom, so that I don't get so frustrated with the things that are right in front of me. Christ Jesus showed them that although judgment is certain, it's on God's timetable, not man's timetable. Whether we like it or not, this world will have a mixture of good and evil in it until God in his timing draws the age to a close. I was talking with a young pastor one time and and, and he said, Pastor, why, uh, I was sort of lamenting, that's one of the great things about being old, you have these good old days that you look back at, doesn't impress anybody, but uh, uh, I, sa- I said, this is terrible, the way folks are, are doing in, in, in this such and such situation, and, uh, and the pastor told me, he said, Pastor, why do you expect coyotes to not act like coyotes? He says, this is a, a fallen world. They're going to act according to their nature. And, and we need to be reminded that we're going to be in this field with the wheat and the tares both until God in his timing says it's time to harvest. The malice of the evil one is our next heading. In the, print, in the parable of the sower and the soils, 
We saw Satan depicted as a thief. And yet here we see him depicted or portrayed as a saboteur. It says, while men slept. And this phrase shows us that Satan's work is often done imperceptibly. He is sneaky. He takes his time. Sometimes our first clue is when the trap springs closed and we realize that it's too late. He has done a great deal of damage. This is why God calls us to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We're not to be gullible. We're to be harmless. Now, we know from the testimony of Scripture that Satan has his demons. He, we see he, numerous instances of demonic possession in the, in the New Testament. We also know that he exerts a tremendous influence. 1 John 5.19 tells us that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. But never do we see in Scripture his power to create. The only thing we see is his power to corrupt, his power to destroy. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. The next question that comes up then is, well, then where do the tares come from? This is our next heading, the interaction of the wheat and the tares. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 37 through 39, he, Christ Jesus, answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the son of the kingdom, but the tares are the son of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Jesus begins this explanation of the parable. And at this point, sometimes it does us well to, to look back, to step back and look at the larger picture. I call this the thousand-foot view, where uh, uh, I don't know if any of you have ever been in a forest of aspen trees. I remember when I was a little boy, I was trout fishing with my dad, and I wandered off down this little stream and, and ended up in, in some meadows there. And, uh, and all of a sudden, I realized I was lost, which is a good thing, good thing to figure out. And... Uh, and it was all these aspen trees. And had I been able to be lifted up a couple hundred feet in the air, I could have seen my dad's truck and everything would have been wonderful. But it was sheer terror knowing that I couldn't find my way out. God sometimes lifts us up above the trees and gives us a glimpse of eternity. Then he sets us back down and we can, we can work our way through. Well, this morning... We need to lift, be lifted up and see this parable of, of the wheat and the tares from an eternal view. Not from a temporal view, but from an eternal view. We back up and we look at the larger picture, looking at the parable through the eyes of redemption history. From Genesis 1 all the way up to Revelation chapter 22. Christ the sower spreads the good seed. This is our Genesis account of the creation of man. I enjoyed that in our, in our Sunday school class going back to, uh, back to Genesis and, and looking at this account of the creation and fall of man. <clears throat> this Genesis account ends in God saw that it was good. That's the spreading of the good seed that we read about in Matthew chapter 13. <clears throat> God saw that it was good. 
Then we come to the fall of man, and at the fall of man, we see Satan oversowing the good seed with tares. Sin enters the world with the result that Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 tells us, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This condemnation is not confined uh, merely to the Old Testament. Romans 3, verses 10 and 11 show us that there's none righteous. And Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, as this sin nature fully manifests itself in hatred and rebellion against God, we see Jesus declare to his opponents in John 8.44, you are of your father the devil. You see, where where we the devil has oversown with uh, his evil ones, as it were. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. So we see that these terrors are present with us in the world. Now, at this point, the literal translation breaks down because God created and he sowed the good seed. Then Satan comes on the scene, and instead of sowing his own seed, he corrupts God's good seed. Furthermore, the results of the fall are such that all the good seed is turned into tares. As I said, a a parable can only go so far, and then it breaks down. This principle, known among theologians as the doctrine of total depravity, is difficult for man to accept. We'd rather view ourselves as dirty wheat than admit that we're actually tares destined to be gathered and burned. Because to admit such a thing, to admit that you're a tear, is to pronounce your own condition as hopeless. It's, it's to admit that we cannot change ourselves from tares into wheat. And that's absolutely right. Folks, we cannot we, we, we can, we can take charm school or whatever kind of foolishness and try and act like wheat. But folks, if you're a tear inside, no matter how much you dress it up outside, a tear is a tear. What it will take is a miracle. The good news is that God has performed that miracle in his son Christ Jesus. Those tears who have been saved by the blood of the Lamb, have been made a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, if any of us is in Christ, we're a new creation. Old things are passed away. In other words, a tear washed in the blood of Christ is viewed as wheat in the eyes of the Father. How cool is that? I... Uh, for, for years, I ministered up in a little town called Concho in northeastern Arizona, uh, over by Sholo and uh, St. John's. And uh, we had a lot of old adobe houses there. And folks would, uh, folks would paint them up on the outside and put new windows in them and put them up for sale. And it was sort of sad because they'd be all eaten up with termites inside, but they'd look nice on the outside. And folks, there's a lot... A lot of programs, a lot of so-called religions that teach you how to put new windows and a new coat of paint on a termite-ridden house. But it doesn't change what's inside. The change inside has to come from the work of Christ. 
the shed blood of Christ Jesus, as he washes us, he changes us from a tear into wheat. What a, what a, if I could bottle that up and sell it to folks, I'd do it. They just don't seem to get it. They want, they want more whitewash. They want more new windows, but they, 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 uh, they don't grasp the understanding. It has to be a change from inside out. It has to be a change that God performs in us. As I said, those tares who've been saved by the blood of the Lamb, who are washed in the blood of Christ, they're viewed as wheat in the eyes of the Father. And here's the neat thing. The only difference between the elect tares and the reprobate tares is the grace of God. They grow up alongside of one another, oftentimes no discernible difference until the day of God's great harvest comes. Now, because the parable is so difficult to work through, commentators often try to read their own interpretations into the nature of the field. But in doing so, the nature of everything else has to be altered in order to reconcile the rest of the parable. Some of the uh, early Puritan commentators held the field to mean the church itself, where true professors and false professors grow up right alongside of one another. And that's easy to understand since virtually everyone in that culture was part of the church. Thus, ripping up the tares was equivalent to being overly harsh to church members who appear to be tares, but in the process harming the tender young Christians who are easily hurt or discouraged. Spurgeon calls this burning down the house in order to get rid of the mice, and some of you can probably relate to that. Borrowing from the parable of the sower and the soils, other commentators held that the good seed was the word of God and the bad seed was false doctrine. Now, these are they're, they're useful applications. They're excellent applications but they're not the primary thrust of the parable. The primary thrust of the parable begins with these words. The field is the world itself. God's elect are wheat growing up right alongside the reprobate tares. And God shows his long-suffering and compassion. He's shown it to us, and he's showing it to those tares out in the world right now. And he shows us that we must endure the tares for his glory because someday one or two of those tares may be washed in the blood of the Lamb by the grace of God and become wheat. He shows us we must endure the tares for his glory just as Christ Jesus did. In this understanding, the desired effect of the parable is that we would trust in God to judge wisely. Say that again, that we could, should trust in God to judge wisely and that we're to display his long suffering towards the world. Folks, we cannot tell from where we stand who is a wheat plant and who is a tear. So we share the gospel with all and we pray for all. I, uh, I was one of those folks that by the grace of God came to faith a little bit later in life. And uh, uh, we had a, a reunion of all my old Navy buddies, and, uh, and it was a great source of laughter among them that I was a pastor. Um, 
it was a great source of amazement that I wasn't um, incarcerated. But it was such a blessing. It was such a blessing to be able to show them I am one of God's trophies that he's placed on his mantle. He took me from here to here. What a, what a blessing, because for many around me, I most likely appeared to be a tear. But God, in his grace, washed me in the blood of the Lamb. And I stand before you as a piece of wheat. Jesus said, the field is the world itself. Our next heading is entitled, The Harvest. In that day, in that day it will be manifest, which are the tares and which are the wheat. As I said, folks, we don't know who is a tare and who is wheat. The mission of the angels will be one of gathering out and of separation. In Matthew 13.41, excuse me, 13.41, we see the gathering out of the reprobate. And yet in Matthew 20, uh, 24.31, we see the gathering out of the elect. So in, in both of these points, we see in one we see the reprobate being gathered, in the other we see the elect being gathered. Whatever the mechanics are, there will be a separation of the elect and of the reprobate. This process of separation and purification is, is a common theme in Scripture. The wheat and the chaff, the sheep and the goats, and the wheat and the tares are just a few examples of this concept of separating out all those things that do offend. Our next segment is entitled The Dragnet. In verses 47 through 50, Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels and but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just and cast them into a furnace of fire, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus follows it with, have you understood all these things? Then we come to the parable of the dragnet, this picture of the end of the age. The first thing that we notice is that in the kingdom of God, there are absolutes. What a profound thought that there are absolutes, that there is such a thing as right and wrong. The kingdom, excuse me, the gathering uh, of every kind took place with this dragnet. You, you get this mental picture of this net being pulled out of the sea. And, and the dragnet gathered some of every kind. But in the separation, we see only good and bad. Did you notice that in our text this morning? Some of every kind were gathered up. But when it came time... To throw the bad ones, they threw them up onto the shore. If you've ever seen fishermen do that, they'll take them and throw them up on the shore. They don't want them back in the sea uh, uh, taking food that could go for the good fish. Those bad ones are tossed up on the shore, and they're sitting there with their gills flapping, and they gather up the good ones. That's all that took place there. They were There was some of every kind, but at the end of the day, there were keepers, and there were those that were thrown away. That's what I tell folks about the, the greatest point of the story of Noah's Ark, was there was all kinds of folks in the world, 
before the, the rains came down. It was probably attorneys, there was probably mechanics, there was probably woodworkers, there was all kinds of folks. But when the rain came down and the floods began to rise, there was only two kinds of people, those in the ark and those outside of the ark. And we need to understand that, folks, we live in a, in a, in a postmodern world. Folks want all these different shades of gray. You know, your, your good is, is my bad, or my bad is your good. And there's all these theoretical shades of gray. In our present culture, good and bad are terms that are rejected by the bright young minds that graduate from our universities. The, uh, the postmodern culture, uh, they, they embrace this relativism, this sliding scale, as it were. I find it interesting, things that are illegal today used to be legal not too long ago. <laughs> things illegal not too long ago have just been voted in. So um, we, 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 they embrace this relativism. They would hold that we all have our own reality and we must be tolerant of each other's truth. And the, the theological term for that, by the way, is, is hogwash. But the Holy Spirit... <laughs> tells us there's only one truth. Christ Jesus says God's word is that truth. Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. How cool is that? There's not a bunch of truths. There is a truth. The second thing that we see is that judgment tarries, but it will come. The net will be drawn to shore in God's time. Just as the wheat and tares grew together in the same field, and all types of fish swam together in the same sea. The church has a mixture of occupants, the visible church, and the world has a mixture of occupants. Folks in the world seem to think that God is either sleeping or non-existent because they don't see immediate judgment upon sin. Because they think that God is altogether like them. They can't conceive of a God who is above them, whose thoughts are above their thoughts, whose ways are above their ways. They can't conceive of a God who's, who is long-suffering towards his own creation. But folks, there will come a day when the net will be drawn to shore, and no one will escape God's judgment. You will be one of those two types of people. You'll be the, either in Christ or outside of Christ. We see the tares gathered and burned in verses 40 through 42. We see that lesson reiterated in the parable of the dragnet, verses 49 and 50, where they're separated out. Whether folks believe in God's judgment or not, at the end of the day, won't make much difference. The judge of all the earth will not be limited by his own creation. God's word tells us he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? How then shall we live? How do we, how do we apply these things in our lives? As, uh, as I told you folks earlier, I, when I trained apprentices, I would tell them, I'm not here to teach you just head knowledge. I don't want you walking away, patting yourself on the back, saying, Behold, I am now wise. Ah, 
You need to be able to apply it. How do, how do we live? Well, number one, if you're outside of Christ, flee to him. Be washed in the blood of the Lamb. We studied the word propitiation in our, in our uh, Sunday school class this morning. I love that. My, my wife uh, uh, taught little ones, and, and uh, she did word pictures for the atonement, for propitiation, for those uh, various theological words that we take for granted. And the one for propitiation was a bucket of water pouring out the fire, the quenching of the wrath of God. Folks, the blood of Jesus Christ quenches the wrath of God towards those who are outside Christ. If we, if we, when we are in Christ, that wrath of God is quenched and that, that sin is atoned for. It, don't worry that you've been a tear for 20 years or 30 years or 40 years. Don't worry. If you've been a tear for your entire life, Christ can make you clean. To those who are in Christ, folks, we're to live a life of faith. Christ is presently reigning in the midst of his enemies. At times it appears otherwise, but I'm here to tell you, his judgment tarries, but it will come. He does reign in the midst of his enemies. Secondly, we're to live a life of patience. James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8 tell us, Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And finally, we're to live a life of humility. We could have been those reprobate tares, never knowing the truth. By the grace of God, we are what we are. God forbid that we should ever pat ourselves on the back and say, You know, those guys, they just don't get it. I I got it. By the grace of God, I got it is the truth. Finally, work while it is yet day. We don't know whether God will grant repentance to our sons, to our daughters, to our neighbors and our friends. Pray that the Holy Spirit will give them a hunger for the truth. Pray for opportunities to share the gospel with them, to talk with them about things eternal. We are so prone spend our time frittering away the hours with that which is temporal. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, without whom we would have no hope. Father, we realize that uh, the day is coming when the net will be drawn to shore. Father, help us to work while it is still day to to implore your Holy Spirit's help. And Father, help us to be your witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the world. We ask these things in our Lord Jesus' name. Amen.